0: Lessons, Ian McEwan's new novel, works from an intimate perspective, yet on an epic scale. We accompany Roland Baines at different moments of his life, military brat, baby boomer, failed poet, pubescent boarder, single father, lounge pianist for hire, as he lives and relives some of his experiences, both domestic and world historical, that moulded him. But as the years go by, and Roland's sense of exactly how he was shaped and by whom changes, we readers come to understand how much our own experience of the past is tinted by our experience of the present. Lessons is a deeply moving and formally stunning study of memory, desire, ambition and regret. And I'm delighted to say that Ian McEwan joins me today to discuss it. Ian, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you. Um, I'd like to begin, I guess, with, with Roland Baines. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, we... Experienced several—I uh, haven't counted them up—but quite a few different iterations of of Roland, and sort of directly or sort of remembered iterations from uh, different moments at Roland's life, and we'll we'll come into the distinction uh, between those in a moment. But I'd just be curious to begin with where where and when you first met Roland. Was it as the uh, the boarder in this kind of slightly unconventional boarding school? Was it the the uh, middle-aged father we we meet right at the beginning, or was it the slightly elderly Roland Baines that we get to know later in the book?
1: It was a very soft, focus, um, long springing-into-focus moment. Uh, towards the end of 2019, I was thinking about writing a long novel um, that would cover a whole lifetime. I'd, I'd mm. spent... A great deal of my writing life, thinking and about character, and thinking about the ways one can present character, and the extent to which modernism had somewhat interrupted the great nineteenth-century discoveries of how to render mm. character, and how postmodernism everything has changed, but yet still we want to continue something of that tradition, mm. um, and. I thought also I'd be using a, a chunk of autobiographical detail in this and merging it with, uh, with it, it, fiction, with entire invention. Um, and those were the general thoughts. And then I found myself just doodling and writing, for once on screen, not in longhand, in a notebook, um, the very opening pages of this, of this novel, A Piano Lesson. I had piano lessons at the age of 11 at boarding school, but nothing very dramatic happened, and I gave up after a couple of years. Um, but it was the same place. The locus was very strong in my mind, the smell of the uh, piano teacher's perfume, which seemed quite obliterating. Um, and I found myself writing a moment of sexual grooming, Um Then I just left all that. Uh, I didn't know who this child was. I didn't know if that was really the way into this rather large idea I had of thinking also about how international global events penetrate the private life. But I was haunted by it and I kept coming back to it. The prose was very impressionistic, um, partly verbless, stream of consciousness. And I started tinkering with it to get it more objective, uh, third person instead of first person, more um focused from the, po- the child's point of view, but at the same time um, capable of zooming out, as it were, and being uh, objective. And mm-hmm. it's at that point that Roland Baines sprang into life. As soon as I moved from the first, the first to the third person, he began to appear before me. And that's why the opening brings us back to Roland Bain's midlife, 1986. Uh, His wife recently vanished. And that's how many of my novels begin. I sort of trick myself into it, start writing, know what's wrong with it. In knowing what's wrong, I find out what I think is right. This was insomniac memory, not a dream. It was the piano lesson again. An orange-tiled floor, one high window, a new upright in a bare room close to the sick bay. He was 11 years old, attempting what others might know as Bach's first prelude from book one of the well-tempered clavier, simplified version, but he knew nothing of that. He didn't wonder whether it was famous or obscure. It had no when or where. He could not conceive that someone had once troubled to write it. The music was simply here, a school thing, or dark like a pine forest in winter, exclusive to him, his private labyrinth of cold sorrow. It would never let him leave. The teacher sat close by him on the long stool, round-faced, erect, perfumed, strict, her beauty lay concealed behind her manner. She never scowled or smiled. Some boy said she was mad, but he doubted that. He made a mistake in the same place, the one he always made, and she leaned closer to show him. Her arm was firm and warm against his shoulder. Her hands, her painted nails, were right above his lap. He felt a terrible tingling, draining his attention. Listen. It's an easy, rippling sound. But as she played, he heard no easy rippling. Her perfume overwhelmed his senses and deafened him. It was a rounded, cloying scent, like a hard object, a smooth river stone, pushing in on his thoughts. Three years later, he learned it was rosewater. Try again. She said it on a rising note of warning. She was musical, he was not. He knew that her mind was elsewhere and that he bored her with his insignificance, another inky boy in a boarding school. His fingers were pressing down on the tuneless keys. He could see the bad place on the page before he reached it. It was happening before it happened. The mistake was coming towards him, arms outstretched like a mother ready to scoop him up. Always the same mistake, coming to collect him without the promise of a kiss. And so it happened. His thumb had its own life. Together they listened to the bad note fade into the hissing silence. Sorry, he whispered to himself. Her displeasure came as a quick exhalation through her nostrils, a reverse sniff he had heard before. Her fingers found his inside leg just at the hem of his grey shorts and pinched him hard. That night there would be a tiny bruise, Her touch was cool as her hand moved up under his shorts to where the elastic of his pants met his skin. He scrambled off the stool and stood, flushed. Sit down, you'll start again. Her sternness wiped away what had just happened. It was gone and he already doubted his memory of it. He hesitated before yet another of those blinding encounters with the ways of adults. They never told you what they knew. They concealed from you the boundaries of your own ignorance. What happened, whatever it was, must be his fault, and disobedience was against his nature. So he sat, lifted his head to the sullen column of treble clefs where they hung on the page, and he set off again, even more unsteadily than before. There could be no rippling, not in this forest. Too soon he was nearing that same bad place, disaster was certain and knowing that confirmed it as his idiot thumb went down when it should have stayed still he stopped the lingering discord sounded like his name spoken out loud she took his chin between knuckle and thumb and turned his face towards hers even her breath was scented without shifting her eyes from his she reached for the 12 inch ruler from the piano lid He was not going to let her smack him, but as he slid from the stool, he didn't see what was coming. She caught him on his knee with the edge, not the flat, and it stung. He moved a step back. You'll do as you're told and sit down. His leg was burning, but he wouldn't put his hand to it, not yet. He took a last look at her, at her beauty, her tight, high-necked, pearl-buttoned blouse. At the fan diagonal creases in the fabric formed by her breasts below her correct and steady gaze.
0: There was something I thought interesting about the uh, the fact that the first I guess substantial period of time we spend with Roland Baines is in this kind of midlife moment. So the uh, the the span of the book is from you know Roland as quite a young boy to uh, a man. In, in sort of, Not, not, I wouldn't say a very elderly man, but starting starting to become uh, as old as me, in fact, yeah. Uh (laughs) And um, and I think there's something about that um, that moment, that midway moment, and maybe it's because that's roughly where I am at the moment that it resonated with me. Maybe it's also similar to to Roland. I have a young, very young child, and but I think even though that's quite a dramatic moment for Roland, as you say, his wife has vanished there does also seem to be something sort of a natural tipping point at around, uh, let's say, in your late 30s, early 40s, when your mind seems to be directed both forwards towards the end of your life, perhaps because that's when your your parents have begun a certain descent, but also back to the beginning of life because the experience of having and raising children suddenly makes a lot of memories resurface.
1: I think that's absolutely right. Um, Adam is... 38, when this novel opens, but he's also, well, in the very first sentences, he's he's 11. I think um, mid to late 30s is a hinge point. It is the time when we've gathered enough adult life for it to be really long, to have friends and to lose friends even through illness and death. Uh, and to start that long backward glance by which we start to think objectively about our childhoods our parents our uh, teen years our transition from adolescent to early adulthood all those all those things sort of start to come into focus and i noticed when i was that age how often i found myself in conversations with friends and lovers about uh about those origins about those beginnings, how we become what we are and then behind that question is, how much control we had over it? Did we just simply, were we simply just objects in, in almost as if in, in someone else's imagining? Did we just slide from school to an apprenticeship or to university? Did we really choose our mates, our friends, our spouses? Um, so yes, it is, as you say, it is a hinge point. And at that point, uh, a crucial moment for Roland, his wife has left a note on the piano, on the uh, oh, sorry, on the pillow, uh, of their <laughs> shared bed, to say um, that she loves him, but this is the wrong life, and she does not leave any other explanation. So um, Roland's sort of hanging over an abyss in a way; he doesn't know where his life is going, and he's left with a seven-month-old baby. Um, And also coming under some suspicion from the police that he might have offed his wife. Uh, It's explained to him that many people, many men who report their wives missing are often murderers. Uh, So that also adds some sort of, let's say, uh, poisonous uncertainty to his existence. Mm
0: -hmm. The... um so this middle point in, Roma's, in roland's life is uh in the in the mid 80s i think so 1985 1986 um and as you said um a moment ago that roland is a more or less an exact contemporary um of, of, of yours and i was i was wondering as i as i read it whether that was always sort of a necessity for you as a writer because roland is so tied into to the events of the day, not in a sort of, you know, there's there's not a very sort of particularly obvious way that sort of a world historical event will have an impact on his life, although there are one or two moments when, of course, when when they do. But it just seemed there's something very sort of, uh, I guess, authentic about, um, about Roland's uh, connection to certain zeitgeist, certain feelings, which I can't imagine would have been possible to to research. It almost had to be lived.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, Roland is a kind of alter ego. He lives the sort of life I might have led if I had not found myself as a writer. I was very determined at the beginning of um, my 20s that that I didn't want a job. I wanted to be free. So I probably would have just hung on in the margins in the way that (laughs) Roland does. And my relation to those global events. Yes, they are a kind of soundtrack to to one's existence. Um, Different maybe if you're a politician or a diplomat. But most of us are not involved. We don't have any control over these things. And yet they do shape our states of mind, our sense of political pessimism or cultural optimism. Um, And I let Roland really just... as. as you suggest, um, take in these events. I mean, 1986 is the year. It's also the year of Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. Uh, It does have immediate effect on him because he's got a seven-month-old baby. Uh, He's worried about the cloud of radioactive dust that is heading towards Britain. He's in a weird state of mind, a panicked state of mind, really. Um, And he starts taking precautions and sealing his house up, even when the cloud is actually heading towards Wales and north-west Scotland and Mrs London altogether. uh, Roland really is, uh, for me, a a kind of everyman in the sense of that powerlessness that we all have in relation to the political events around us. He reads the papers. um, He knows what's going on. But his relationship to it is rather like uh, Odysseus or uh, Aeneas in in the Aeneid. um, The the politicians, Gorbachev, Kennedy, whoever, are like Greek gods, all too human, (laughs) all too flawed, feet of clay, um, and yet managing, in some cases, life and death for millions of people. Um, So, yes, he... He becomes my vehicle for examining the extent to which um, global events intrude on the private life. And nothing Mm. intrudes more savagely um, than a war. Mm. And so the Second World War and the effect that has on his parents is also one of the longest shadows uh, cast uh, throughout the novel.
0: Mm mm-hmm. I'd like to come back to, to that point in a moment, actually, about him being essentially a sort of, for want of a better term, a sort of a baby boom, baby. Um, but just just staying with this um, idea of sort of following historical events for the moment. There's there's one point um, and I don't think this is giving too much away when um uh, Roland's father dies, and you write that he could have tried for an association between the demise of a Tory administration and his father's death, but it wouldn't fit. Uh, and that just made me made me wonder: as a as a novelist, did you have to sort of practice a certain restraint to make it not fit too well, and not to sort of tack too closely to the uh, the ups and downs of history?
1: Uh, not only does it not fit; sometimes there is a great collision. Uh, and distinction between what's happening in the private life and what's happening in the world beyond. And um, I think many of us experience that right now. Uh, we have to compartmentalise. <clears throat> Roland feels great foreboding, uh, particularly about the climate emergency, and yet also at the same time, enormous happiness to become a grandfather towards the end of his life. Um after a lockdown, um, sitting with his daughter-in-law and son and the children upstairs asleep. And they've just been talking about climate change uh, and his son works at a a climate change institute in Berlin. And that disjunction between Mm. the pleasure one might find in friends or in a lover or a spouse or children and the sense too that The future is so uncertain, so shifting, so unreliable. Um, And it's something I've talked about with my sons and and daughters-in-law. In in fact, just last week when they were all here, um, that collision, and you Mm -hmm. cannot marry them. How do you marry the sense of delight in a a child and foreboding about what kind of world it's going to grow up in? And we tend to put them in different boxes. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think... Humankind is very good at these compartmentalizations.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you put me in mind of, uh, of course, the pandemic and lockdowns, which, of course, feature um, towards the the end of the book. And just that very word, actually, lockdown, which we all at a certain moment used as if it was a communal experience. But then slowly, as we began to understand how other people were living their own lockdowns, realised actually that it was sort of such a, a placeholder, kind of empty word, for such a wide gamut of uh, experiences, some very positive, some incredibly negative?
1: Well, uh, there is a double side for myself and for all other writers. Was, I mean, lockdown is what we dream of, uh, mm-hmm. or what we do anyway. Uh, <laughs> and to have an empty diary with no airports, no security checks, um, no travelling to fulfil promises rashly made 18 months ago, was an extraordinary opportunity. Um, and we see it now in the in the extraordinary glut of novels and non-fiction books that are appearing on <laughs> publishers' lists. Um, we all got stuck down into it. But yes, uh, it was a curious uh, mix of sensing that f- uniquely the whole planet was doing the same thing, locking down, and yet, uh, in our togetherness, we were entirely alone with whoever we were bubbled up with, or whoever you know, or, or just really uh, on our own.
0: Mm.
1: So, um, it. I never. I mean, I started writing this novel at, at, uh, in late twenty nineteen, um, and we we locked down. Actually, our household down a month before the government did. But um, in February of 2020, the national lockdown began here in March. Um, and it seemed to me, on the aesthetic corner of my life, the writing side, an extraordinary opportunity to, mm-hmm. to be 10, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, totally immersed uh, and never having to break off. And it also I knew then that it was too large and too shared. I mean, If I was thinking about global events that penetrate the, the uh, private life, then apart from a war, I think uh, the pandemic was the um, supreme example. People yeah. forced apart, families forced apart, friendships conducted only by phone or video. Um, yeah, it was a a really. Uh, it just fell into the pattern of this novel in ways that I could never have anticipated.
0: Mm-hmm. It's um in the of course in the early days of the pandemic there was a lot of sort of uh, rhetoric around sort of beating the pandemic in a similar way to the rhetoric that was used during wartime. Um, but you mentioned earlier that Roland was born, so he's a sort of a post war baby just um and he's so part of that generation which grew up essentially in the shadow of their um of their of their father's actions I guess and also probably their grandfather's actions of course because their grandfathers would have likely served in the in the first world war and it's interesting because I recently spoke to A.M. Holmes about her new novel which of course takes place in the in the United States and the protagonist of that is a man of a similar generation as well and just reading the two in parallel it struck me that as much as there's a certain we spoke about the commonality of the the hinge moment at the age of 40 it also struck me there's something very particular about this generation um that was perhaps in in a sense suffered from not being so sort of explicitly tested in the way that um that they're Parents' generation, well, and I guess it's something which particularly impacts on on men.
1: No, I I, I think it's it, the difference between the two generations, my generation and my parents' generation, uh, was very very sharp indeed. Uh, they were shaped by not only the Second World War but also um, by the depression of the. Uh, late mm. 20s and early 30s. Um, and my parents, coming from fairly impoverished uh, working-class homes, and, and both of them left school at 14, were really uh, victims of events. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and as for myself growing up, well, heightened by the fact that I was the son of a, a soldier and, uh, who went on being a soldier and became an army officer, rose through the ranks uh And we grew up, my generation, in a time of steady steadily growing prosperity and expanding opportunity. Um, I was the first one in my family to stay at school past sixteen and therefore the first to go to university. Um, my father constantly uh, would remark that if anyone had told him when he was in his 20s that he would have a son who went to university, he, he could not yeah. have believed it. Um, just not. It was not even in anyone's on anyone's horizon. Mm-hmm. So we were left with a kind of guilt that we, growing up in Britain at least, um, and I'm, I think this is true of the United States, did not have to fight... Um, Nazism did not have to invade Europe to liberate it from probably one of the most grisly political dispensations that has ever been devised. Uh, And we were careless, I think. Um, You know, I blush to think of how, when we were in our early 20s on various campuses across the West, long-haired, barefoot, dope-smoking... And somewhat, um, somewhat sardonic, let's say, about our parents who were polishing their cars on Sundays and mowing their lawns. and But they, they had stared into the abyss.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They had seen death on a scale that we knew nothing about. And what they craved was ordinariness. And what they loved was um, the growing prosperity that had made their lives so much better Uh, so the first car the first tv set the first color tv set the first house that they actually owned was Mm -hmm. so much more important and we could afford to be contemptuous of all that and um um, strike free (laughs) Um, (laughs) and that was our luxury and it took it took me again i think into my 30s to get a perspective the kind of perspective that I think comes in one's the late 30s, to just see what a privileged generation we were. Rock and roll, uh, sex, uh, paperback books, you know, the explosion of, of all that. And there was one crucial thing, Adam, that I think the 60s brought to us, which is, I think, under-celebrated. When I was growing up, I think I was loved, but I was managed. Um, mm-hmm. The... 50s parents managed their children. Uh, something happened in all human relations across the West in the 1960s. And crucially, it changed the way adults related to children mm-hmm. so that by the time I was a parent, it was very common to have conversations with children, I mean, to actually right. talk to them. That didn't happen in the 50s, <laughs> or at least not in in... in, in My milieu. Uh, There was a book published recently uh, by an American author, I'm afraid I've forgotten his name, um, about uh, drugs. And he said, um, he writes memorably, if you want to know what it's like to take LSD, have breakfast with a four-year-old. And uh, (laughs) I knew exactly what he meant. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The the inconsequential nature of of uh, childrens, or the the leaps of uh, logic and so on are, are wondrous. That was not available to my hard-working parents' generation. There was no time to sit down with children and talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when my parents used to visit and my sons were you know, five and three, my father said regretfully, we never were able to do these things. Um, you, you never sat on my lap. <laughs> and, I, mm-hmm. and I said, yeah, well, you were too fearsome. You know, it's not what <laughs> we um, uh, Yeah, so, that, uh, and I caught the regret in his voice. And he can't yeah. be blamed. I mean, that was the culture. I mean, that was... And, and the opportunities
0: were narrow. You, you touched on something there, which I think is a very important part of Lessons, is that sort of, that reevaluation? of our attitudes to the the people in our life who who shaped us Those are often our families but also perhaps teachers or um, in the case of in the case of Roland his wife as well I think Um, and that's yeah I think one of the most sort of powerful things about reading the book for me is that we sort of we accompany Roland on that journey so when he um Visits and revisits at different moments in his life. This experience with the the piano teacher. It's almost like there's kind of layers of nuance and reinterpretation, and sometimes kind of quite dramatic shifts in his uh, in his perspective about what happened. Which I think is something very natural in life that we that we live. But often I find in in books, maybe because they don't take place often the kind of character studies over such a vast scales is often lacking in fact we often get the kind of the immediate reaction to events and that is held almost as a definitive one whereas on a book of this scale you had the opportunity yeah as i say to visit and to revisit the events and to add these these complexities i suppose to to roland's memories
1: i think this is the huge difference between writing a whole life and writing a character um and we are all characters through time, and time shifts our perspective um I think the dominant um motif is forgiveness, so I think in the in my thirties, I directed a lot of blame towards my background and the people in it and my parents and so on um having children oneself uh I think that softens certain things. Um, and then getting older, I think as one becomes more generally tolerant of the vast um, mosaic, as it were, of, of, of human nature, mm-hmm. um, one becomes more forgiving. Or even as darker things might intrude, Uh, an understanding comes, um, one's still far more distant and objective from it, even though the memories seem to get more intense. So the prime example in this novel is that Roland is groomed by his piano teacher at the age of 11. At the age of 14, when he thinks the world is about to end because of the Cuban Missile Crisis and there might be an all-out nuclear war, uh, he goes to see her because... He does not want to die um, without sexual experience. So he's a he's a lamb leading himself to the, the slaughter. He's a self-basting turkey in this respect. <laughs> uh, and he thinks it's all his choice. But of course it's mm-hmm. not. There's no such thing as a consensual sexual relationship between an adult and a 14-year-old. Um, that casts a very long shadow, but it requires a whole lifetime for him to come to any kind of understanding of it. And even when he finally, 40-odd years later, goes to see that woman, nothing is particularly resolved. Uh, and that is another sort of leitmotif of the novel, is that we, we either forget <coughs> the things that troubled us or we simply add them to our baggage. Uh, it's only in novels... <laughs> or movies sometimes that some great problem in one's life is solved. Very rarely mm. that you just move on, or you forget, or you just say, "Well, that's who. That's part of what I am." And you, know, you either deal with it or you don't. But you know, it doesn't. You cannot change the past. So, mm. uh, coming back to our starting point that point in one's life when one's looking back and one's late 30s mid to late 30s that's actually only one part of the process Mm. that story will change we write and rewrite our past Um, yeah we understand it differently um and uh, and as i say i think we forgive more
0: yeah just on that uh, that subject of writing and 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 rewriting our past um so i've read i've read lessons once and I'd actually, it was only really towards the end when I really got a sense of the the formal uh, sort of innovation, if you like, of the book. Like, I think it's such a sort of, it's such a pleasure to read. It sort of pulls you through that it was only, yeah, as I say, coming to the end that I realized what you were doing explicitly with um, memory, sort of presenting them from Different stages of Roland's life and showing how they showing how they change and so and showing how they evolve. And I'm curious from a sort of a uh, the perspective of of actually writing it and kind of keeping it under control. Was it something that came quite naturally again because it was uh, you were drawing on certain experiences and certain memories uh, from you from your own life, or was it something that you really had to be quite rigorous to remember? Okay, how is Roland? approaching this particular event at this period in his life? And did you have sort of quite detailed notes of that uh, of that process?
1: I had a pretty strong sense um, in the early months of writing this that it was going to be a long novel. I've always been sceptical of, of many long novels that they don't earn their keep mm-hmm. um, and they get baggy. Um, so I had to get a very clear notion of structure of architecture mm-hmm. so there are three parts uh in each part there are four chapters each of those chapters is somewhere between 12 and 15000 words long long enough to sort of live inside as it were mm-hmm. as a reader everything that goes through roland's life is revisited he goes to see his piano teacher again there's an important rendezvous with the wife, his first wife who runs away. Um, she becomes Europe's greatest novelist. He goes to visit her. She's at the end of her life. She's had a, leg, a foot amputated. She has distal neuropathy through smoking. Um, he has a crucial argument that turns into a physical fight with a man who's he once used to play rock and roll with, who's now become um, part of a rather corrupt administration in Britain, uh, and Roland finds himself thrown into a river, um, defeated. As I've, which is a reflection on my own sense of defeat after Brexit, somewhat. <laughs> but everything, everything, but not not too schematically, but everything gets revisited sooner or later. Uh, <laughs> The very important woman, the character called Daphne, super competent, wonderful, warm, loving woman that he marries, but only rather late and who gets ill and dies. All that is a thread running through the the entire novel, as is the life of his child. Um, He's deeply involved in raising a baby, and he already senses that one of the extraordinary things about parenthood is the long, long letting go. So, when you have full charge of a seven-month-old, you know where he or she is at every second of the day, more or less, and you know what they're doing. And that is a long farewell, uh, till mm. you know you might see them every two or three months in the in their forties and as I say, a brief hug and a chat about politics and a dinner and some wine and then bye. Um, how you manage that actually is is quite painful. And one of mm-hmm. the most under-celebrated painful moments, I think, in the life of all parents is, well, it comes in stages, dropping them off at primary school on their first day. I mean, Many parents get quite moist-eyed at that. But also it's when they go off, you know, leave home. Um, They come back, of course, but um, those divisions, that realisation that you have depended on them as much as they have depended on you. Um, Only um, in a whole life novel can you chart these changes and, and get a sense of what a whole life is like. Um, so for me, it was almost like living a whole life within the space of two or three years to to mm. write it.
0: One um one thing it's it's a small point that I wanted to bring up because it really it really struck me. Um, was that at a, at a at a moment uh, when you've mentioned the Roland sort of seeks out this uh, this piano teacher forty years later, and is able to 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 find her well his, with the help of his son with relative ease thanks to thanks to the internet and it really struck me that the kind of life that roland lived the kind of life that i think anybody uh up at, you know probably 40 45 or over now at least lived some of could not be lived now or wouldn't or sort of hadn't there's no there's no way that we could sort of would likely fall in and out of touch with people lose track like we're so much more interconnected that i because this novel is so much about memory and sort of what, how people transform in our minds when we don't have any contact with them or we don't know what they're doing now. It really seemed to embody a certain period where, I guess it's the sort of the post-Second World War freedom up to the point of, I guess, the late 90s, early 2000s, where there's a different sort of restriction on our freedom put by the fact that we're always, to a certain extent, contactable or reachable. Yes,
1: um, there are gains and there are losses. Um, when Roland makes his first attempt to uh, contact his piano teacher, it's long before the internet has come, and as I reflect, or or Roland reflects for me, uh, someone could move just three blocks away before the internet, and you never you would have any idea how to find them. I mean, a lot of phone calls. Uh, Then he has to travel right across London to the Association of Piano Teachers to see if she's on some register, and she isn't, and he gives up. Um, And yes, our lives are much more connected. I think that what many of us have lost is the art of solitude. And I think this bears hard upon... Writers. I mean, sometimes I find myself in a room addressing people at the beginnings of their writing career and I urge them to try and switch off from, from the internet and all its amazing temptations and either just allow themselves the great luxury of thinking without something about to go off in your pocket and maybe some notification but just the pleasure of thinking or the pleasure of addressing that thinking into a notebook in longhand, without a machine, without a screen that is also a portal to everything that's good and bad in human nature. Um, I mean, one of the great fruits of civilization is solitude. Not, Mm -hmm. I mean, as distinct from loneliness, which is a very different matter. Uh, And the cultivation of it has become a lot more difficult. And I find it in myself. You you come off a long flight, which is the only occasion really now when we can be alone with our thoughts. Mm. Um, and it is great to be above the cloud and the drinks trolley has already come and, and you think you might be looking down on your life, as it were. But anyway, I notice that when we get to the luggage carousel and there's 20 minutes to wait, everyone is just <laughs> hungry <laughs> for... I've been away for three hours, two hours, 90 minutes. Uh, Whereas pre-internet, 25 minutes at the luggage carousel, you'd have to walk up and down and think. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I mean, if you're really focused, you might find a seat somewhere and go on reading a novel, but it's sort of difficult. You're all sort of vaguely discombobulated or jet-lagged or something. Uh, Reading emails or WhatsApps or whatever is... So much easier than thinking, so much mm. more tempting. So yeah, um,
0: and it it leaves you also, I think the um, the pre-internet time, you'd be left alone with your thought, but also left alone with your memories as well. Um, and and this was something um, I was thinking about. I was I was really interested to hear you say that it was you know to a certain extent uh, there were certain biographical elements here because one of the feelings. Uh, I got quite early on in the book, which was sustained for 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 large parts of the novel, was a sense that I'd only ever previously got with certain memoir and memoir that would be sort of might be considered a sort of an exercise in memory, something like uh, the writing of uh, Karlovy Knausgaard for example, where even though the experience on the page are not your experience, something about the the authenticity of an experience and a memory expressed excavates something from yourself and I felt that very very powerfully while reading lessons which was a surprise because as I say for me it was a a work of fiction which doesn't generally work in the same way but I'm curious for you as an exercise in memory you sort of you had one foot in, in both camps in a way did it has the writing of lessons had an impact on how you look back on your own life was there sort of was it something that you were could be comparable to the ex- that sort of excavation of, of memoir writing I, I think
1: there were for me genuine discoveries along the way in, in, in reflecting um, on on the nature of memory um, there 's a moment in roland 's life he 's living with his parents in North Africa his father's been posted there to Libya. Tripoli, Libya, Uh, the Suez crisis, another large political event, occurs. There's a fear by the authorities, the British authorities, that Arab nationalist uprising might um, be dangerous for civilians. Um, This all happened to me, so I make it happen to Roland. Mm -hmm. Um, One day, the school bus didn't stop at my house, went past it to an army camp. My mother happened to be in England at the time. Um, and we were herded into a very small camp on the edge of a desert. Um, all the soldiers were in combat gear. There were machine gun nests and um, APC, armoured personnel carriers and tanks and God knows what. Um My father was in charge of the civilians generally and their security. So he was a distant figure striding uh, around with a very large gun strapped to his waist. And I had the time of my life running free with friends. And it was in the writing of this that I thought, I think actually those 10 days had a huge impact on my life. And it was a contributory factor in becoming a writer the the sense of freedom and space and adventure meant that by the time I was 18 or 19, I knew I would never get a job. I couldn't bear mm. the idea. I wanted that a return of that moment. And I think my love of hiking is derived, that sense of being out with friends on mountain ridges or whatever, and also something about having to rely on your wits. This is, again when you had to read a map rather than just GPS on your phone to know precisely where you were and trying to read those maps uh fine to have a map but where are you on the map not, not always easy to know especially in a high wind and the map won't stay still and it's raining <laughs> like hell and it's getting dark and you know that if you don't find your refuge you're, you're going to spend a very bad night all of that so that wasn't one of the I, just one instance of the discovery I made about about myself by having to live, by giving certain key moments of my own life to Roland to, to discover certain things about the choices I made that I wasn't aware of or wasn't aware of the mm-hmm. driving force behind them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: More crucially, um, I understood... Something about my parents and my mo- the mother had to go with her sister and give away a baby that she'd had, having an illicit affair with um, the man who would one day become my father. Uh, the extent of the sadness that cast over her life. Mm. I, I might have known that, but I didn't really feel it till I had to write it. Mm. Um, just how profound that sorrow was. What a tragedy it was her. Um, And as I say, uh, um, in the novel, uh, Roland is looking at a photograph and it's got his mother in 1940, that's eight years before he's born. On either side of her are her two children, my half-brother and half-sister. And this is a woman with a level gaze, a very pretty young woman, confident, um, looking straight into the camera lens with a half-smile. And that's a woman I never knew, because the woman I knew mm-hmm. had given away a child and was racked by guilt about it. Um, again, um, that was something that writing the novel made me f- feel from the inside the, mm-hmm. the nature of my own relationship with my mother,
0: yeah there's so much more i would like to talk about but we we don't have a great deal of time and i would like to just come back to this idea connected to what you just said about um i guess, i guess it is about feeling it's a subject of music so this is sort of this is a constant um refrain i guess throughout the book the uh of course you have the piano lessons but you also have um sort of roland's uh interest and passion for jazz um there's also I'm, i don't i'm going to talk around it because i i almost never shed tears at novels and yet there's one moment and I'm going to, I, you'll know what I'm talking about when I say uh there's a moment where he's playing in the hotel later on and there are some people in the audience that uh that he he, he rediscovers um that really uh partly you know in large part obviously because of the book but also because of the the resonance of the song and I I listened to because um, I don't have any background in classical music, I listened to some of the uh, music that Roland and uh, his piano teacher were playing together to uh, to to help me kind of get a sense of um, of the feelings. It might be um, it might be. Oh, you uh, listen to those those
1: Mozart piano duets, four handers. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, that's a
0: wonder of um, of Spotify these days. That so they're very uh, they're very accessible. But um, but I'm just curious to hear from you about the sort of the importance of. The specific pieces of music that you uh, that you refer to, and, and I guess particularly the capacity for music of 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 of, of drawing up memories from the uh, from the abyss of consciousness, I guess.
1: Well, music can function very powerfully, uh, uh, um, like Proust's Madeleine. I mean, mm-hmm. you know that because there's such an emotional content to music especially music in, that you hear and love in your youth, which you can never forget. Um, and because it has this emotional content, I think it's it's powerfully stored, as it were, within, who knows, the hippocampus or whichever part of the brain um, might unite the auditory with, with, with memory. Um, since, you know, I, I love music and listen to it a lot, Uh, there are certain things about it that I just cannot find in literature. Uh, Pure abstraction, for for a start. Uh, It's like, I mean, to quote a line of Larkin, it's like something almost being said, but what is being said? It feels so human and yet... um, it's just slightly beyond meaning. The other thing is um, confrontation with genius. I don't think there's any art form in which you are so nakedly confronted with the nature of genius than when you hear a piece of music that you love, and then you think, "How on earth was that written down?" <laughs> um, there was a piece of Bach I was listening to. It's from one of the partitas. It's the last movement, the jig. Very fast packed with notes absolutely gorgeous piece of music and I thought I must just see how that's written I can't imagine how that's written on the page there are hardly any notes it's extraordinary (laughs) to get such a feeling um, with so little Uh, it's quite extraordinary Um, and as I said I mean I can read music and I stared at it but I mean I don't play the piano but I stared at it and thought even looking at it i can 't quite see it. then it took me a while
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i thought there i 'm staring right into the eyes of genius I, you know in other words, it, partly genius is lying far beyond anything you could do yourself or even mm-hmm. dream of doing um, and you get that in moments in literature, and I think especially in poetry, but in music i 've the other day I was listening, first thing in the morning, happened to come on the radio, um, a, Col- a John Coltrane piece, Giant Steps, in which oh, yes. there are chord changes practically two, or th- two to the bar, and they are difficult, you know, wild, augmented, m- minor sevenths chords that um, <laughs> no, um no jazz man from the New Orleans tradition could begin to to uh, play or, or like, uh, and again, I thought, listening to this i must I must look at the music i mean I, jazz written down and that actually becomes a, a part of the scene of a between mm-hmm. Roland and his piano teacher. Jazz written down is insufficient I mean because it 's not meant to be written down, so when Roland. Um, plays Round Midnight to his piano teacher. Um, she throws him out uh, because he's trying to move beyond her control. She snatches the music from him and plays it to him and it sounds pathetic because she's just reading it as a classical musician. doesn't have that thing. Um, and it hasn't got that thing, you know, it can't swing. Um and for a few days, you know, she banishes Roland from her presence, um, which is, again, a form of control. But that difference between something written down and experienced, uh, which I think jazz is the closest to putting human experience in, instead of something written, um, was, was an important element of, of, of writing the novel. So music's, I mean, it's come up. It's just part of my reality, so it it has to come up. Uh, Sometimes it, I wrote a novel called On Chesil Beach, and a man and a woman who love each other but can't quite understand each other, especially sexually, but can't understand each other musically either. um, He comes and listens to her rehearse with her string quartet, and all he hears is, prim agitation um um, he then plays to her some chuck berry songs and she wants to be appreciative and she says oh it's so merry and he thinks that's exactly the wrong word Uh, (laughs) and she says but she thinks but she doesn't say Why on earth, when music is written in uh, common time, four four beats to the bar, does it need any drums? Mm. I mean, why not use a metronome? Or, I mean, what if you had drums in a string quartet? Uh, And that's the extent of their mutual incomprehension. So, music performs a sort of function of of a kind. Yeah. Uh, I can't really imagine a life without music. It's just part of one's mental furniture. And, it, you know, that old cliche about soundtrack of one's existence. Well, that's true too. Um, I'm amazed, you know, sometimes I hear some sort of quiz on TV or radio and any music, pop music or rock rock music played after about 1984 or five, I I cut off at that point. Uh, <laughs> too busy writing and raising children and only listening to classical music and jazz and also i came from that generation of uh, rock and roll generation who really thought that any pop music without guitars was not worth listening to a complete <laughs> <and> terrible error <laughs> but yeah uh but i wanted a guitar lick at every stage um, so one, one gets very formed by uh, the, the music one was passionate about in one's teens. You, yeah. you never listen as well to music as in your teens.
0: Ah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You said it's a terrible error uh, you made about, about rock and roll and pop music, but then it would take another whole lifetime to, to catch up on, which, in a sense, as novelists, you have. But... I did come
1: around. I came around to Van Morrison, for example, you know, using lovely arrays of brass I came around to David Bowie. Uh, but at the time, I just dismissed them completely. <laughs> just not, not enough guitars.
0: Well, that is um, all we've got time for. Um, I could have talked about so many uh, other elements of the novel with you because there's so much there's so much in there. And it's such a... Um, it's such an experience to read it's one of those it's one of those books i read it over i think it was over four days which for a novel of oh, that's this nice. size yeah. is, is quite quick but you feel like you're you're sort of the, the days expanded into a uh into a into an into an into another life i suppose um of course lessons is available from uh, shakespeare and company from our bricks and mortar store and from our uh online uh our online website It's also available from your local independent bookstore um, wherever you may be based uh, Ian McCune, all that remains for me to say is thank you so much for joining us today
1: well thank you very much for having me on and reading so intensely
0: <laughs> thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast if you've enjoyed this conversation it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends and don't forget if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just three euro a month Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.